This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Thank you to everyone who got in touch about two specials last week on Downing Street, uh, the history of it and what it's like to work there. Um, lots of people tweeted about it. If you wanted to help us climb up the iTunes chart, you could always leave a review or uh, rating there. Uh, that would be lovely, especially if they are positive. On to this week, I'm joined in the studio by Ollie Wright, the policy editor of the Times, talking about Brexit and in particular what on earth is Boris Johnson up to this time. Times columnist Jenny Russell on the resignation of Eric Schneiderman, New York's Attorney General. But first, Anne Ashworth on the idea from the Resolution Foundation of helping younger people get on in life. The Resolution Foundation's proposal for a £10,000 bequest at age 25, a kind of state dowry for everyone, is controversial and may not be workable. But we should be thinking big on intergenerational fairness as part of wider tax reform. We're already asking the public for ideas on inheritance tax, so let's go further by, for example, looking at stamp duty. Let's get the affluent moving more by cutting stamp duty and making them pay higher rates of council tax, putting more properties into higher brackets. This is our moment to start thinking about those under 25 and how we can give them a better deal. So in this, this report, I mean, it's huge, this Resolution Foundation report. They sort of pulled together a whole load of work they've been doing over some time. It's sort of interesting that the, the idea of intergenerational fairness and and uh, addressing, uh, helping younger people get on when the baby boomers are still doing quite well, it does still feel like it's the world of think tanks and it's not something which is taken off politically. Maybe the world of think tanks, but one of the things that whenever I speak to anybody in property, and there's some people who think quite deeply in out there in the world of property. They say there is a mass of angry late 20-somethings who see their exclusion from the property market, from decent pension saving, as an affront. They see them, their father at the same age as them of having had a house, a car, maybe already starting a family. And they feel that unless we cater for that age group, and really make some big reforms in their favour, society as a whole will be a loser because these people are so very angry. And what they might, how they might vote at elections, for example, could take our country in entirely the wrong direction. But what about this idea of 
giving everyone £10,000 when they turn 25 as a, as a sort of leg up. Is that really the answer? If you're the Resolution Foundation, you need one big <laughs> idea within a series of recommendations that gets people talking yeah. about the broader issues. And I salute them for this one. £10,000, some people would blow it all, some people would save it. You're Does... not allowed to blow it all, though. That's, that, that's the rule. You can't go out and spend it on dresses. It's got to go towards education or a house or, or a pension or starting a business. I just think that the level of disadvantage is so much greater than that. You know, you when you're at the airport and you see all these really, really affluent-looking 70 or 80-somethings on final salary pensions... They've got guaranteed payouts, index linked. People in their 20s, 30s and 40s will never enjoy that kind of pension. The advantage that the baby boomers have is so extraordinary and it's a once in a lifetime thing. We need to do something for the millennials. Jenny? Yes, I agree with Anne entirely that we need to do something. The puzzle to me, and I have children in their 20s and so I know a lot of their friends, is why there isn't actually a young person's revolution. I mean, the whole economy has been pitched against them in the most scandalous fashion. The fact that the heart, that now almost half the population go to university, but they've all got to pay for it and therefore being a graduate isn't much advantage in the jobs market, whereas in my generation, 10 to 12% well, of to pay, us went. have to pay for it afterwards. Yeah, but that is a tax <coughs> for 30 years of 9% on everything they earn above £24,000. And that's an amazing super tax. Imagine if we all had 9% extra imposed on us over £24,000. We would be out there in the streets rioting and voting out any government that brought it in, but the young just take it. So they've got all these disadvantages that Anne is talking about. And my worry about the Resolution Foundation is that she's absolutely right. It's brilliant of them to come up with something which we're all talking about, and everybody is. But this goes nowhere near addressing the problem. If you live in London at the moment, you cannot buy a two-bedroom flat, which you might therefore be able to live in or rent a room out or have a child with your partner in, for less than half a million. Now, if you're going to borrow three and a half times your salary, that means you've got to be earning £100,000, which nobody is in their 20s. I mean, even the people who are working in the city aren't going to earn that for several years. And and you've got to have something like £150,000 deposit available to you. These people can't start their lives. They can't lead their lives in the way that we did. And it's not a case of saying, well, you know, suck it up, just rent. They rent rooms and then their landlords decide they'll sell on after four months or they're moving back. They've got no security. And their lives are frankly impossible. And I don't understand why politically this isn't a bigger issue. I mean, I think one thing, and Anne would know much more about this than I do, but there is a danger with sort of eye-catching policies that they have perverse results. You don't expect them to happen, but they do. One good example is when the government cut stamp duty for first-time buyers. The OBR at the time, it sounded great, but the Office of Budget Responsibility at the time made the point that probably the effect of this would simply be to increase house prices, helping nobody. And if you gave 25-year-olds each £10,000, would that not have a similar effect? I think the problem is the housing market and the problem is supply in the housing market and there isn't enough of it and you need to build more that's actually a reasonably simple solution to the problem if you build enough to bring down house prices you will create a, an opportunity for people to buy that don't have it at the moment but the other side to that is people who are sitting on houses that are a moment worth two million pounds aren't going to like it very much if they suddenly see five hundred thousand pounds knocked off the value of their property this is why I think the Resolution Foundation's recommendations out this morning should be the start of a broader conversation about how we reform all taxes. 
When you speak to somebody really, really affluent who won't move because he balks at the amount of the stamp duty he has to pay, you think, wouldn't it be really intelligent to say, right, pay half of that, but pay much larger council tax in the area you're moving to, to pay for local services, improve local schools, and get the housing market moving? Because we are... Around about 90,000 homes are changing hands every month. It should be more like 150,000. We need a lively housing market, more transactions, which would encourage house builders to build more at an affordable level. Because if you're a house builder, you're looking at the market now and thinking, who wants to move? Why should I put new supply into the market? Let me put, put the counterpoint. Actually, uh, the millennials, if that's what we're, we're calling them, are better educated, they're healthier, they're better connected to the world. They, uh, Although some of the Resolution Foundation's research shows that at diff- comparable points in their career, they're not as well paid as their, their, the, the baby boomers. But most of them aren't doing the same sort of physical manual work that was going on before. Uh, isn't that why they're not rioting and up in arms about this so they they accept that this is this is the world now it's no longer religion is the opium of the people or let them eat cake it's um let them look at their smartphones and, <laughs> and, and, and they'll be perfectly sex, happy apparently. they're just they're just according well, to exactly, a study you know, just... i don't I, I don't think this will last forever because i think a lot of um, young people have thought well i'm in a temporary stage and things will improve i think it's taken quite a long time for it to dawn upon people that this is not a temporary phenomenon and i think one of the only good things about brexit is that i think it will bring down house prices but it's very hard to see that even if they would fall by, say, 25% in London over the next few years, that wouldn't be enough to make them affordable to all the young people who are now on these contract or gig economy jobs. And I think one of the key issues here, we were talking about build build more houses, but of course London is full of new housing, and it's full of new housing that has been sold often off-plan to very wealthy people from abroad who don't live in it. And one of the things that I would do if I was emperor of the, the world, or even just of Britain, would be to... <laughs> <laughs> thanks, you can vote me in now. Is I'd put a 100% tax on anyone who's trying to buy in Britain who's not a British resident. And I would slap enormous taxes on all those people who've bought flats and don't live in them. They can buy multi-million pound flats in London, which they do, you know, two million upwards, two million to ten million, and they pay two thousand pounds a year in tax. It is absolutely insane. But doesn't that, going back to the perverse incentives of policies, doesn't that create its own problems because that would hit your 26-year-old Indian who's coming to create an IT firm who going well, give it, give him give him a visa oh if, he's, if he's coming to work here, but there are very few of those. I, Anne will know the figures m- much better than I do, but something like 40% of prime central London property last year was sold to people from abroad who don't live in it, don't contribute to London, and are just using it as a storage vault in the sky. And so the answer is not simply to build more property. What I would say there is we might ask why the banks aren't financing schemes at the outset. One of the reasons why developers will go abroad to try and sell a tranche of apartments is to get a load of upfront finance that they're not able to get from the banks. And that lack of upfront finance (coughs) for building particularly affects the kind of small and medium-sized builders who should be furnishing more affordable homes for millennials. There is so much in the housing market that is broken. The government has acknowledged that. And I'm beginning to wonder, within the new regime at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, whether there is the will there to change it or there is the assumption that who cares if a whole generation rents until retirement? Well, 
I think they will care when they're unable to pay their rents out uh, of inadequate pensions. And just we've heard so much about the sort of what the government is going to do mm. on housing that it's Theresa May's biggest priority. Mm. From what you've seen on it, ha- what they put so far, forward so far, does any of it make a difference or not? Or to what extent does it make a difference? I'm really very sad that we've seen Sajid Javid go from that role because I think he really got it. He really knew what it was like not to have a home of your own and I think was willing to say to nimbiest voters, look, resist development all you like, but see what your home is worth when Mr Corbyn gets in, voted in by the priced out. I think there is an assumption that development is sort of wrong amongst a great many people who would also, with one part of their other part of their brain, acknowledge that everybody needs a home. Our feeling on this is so muddled and too much of our money is tied up in the property market. Well, we'll wait and see um, how Sajid Javid's successor, James Birkenshire, gets on it, the Ministry of Housing, as to whether or not, given that he's seen as an ally of Theresa May, he tries to dial back some of the stuff that Sajid managed to, to get through in the face of uh, opposition from number 10. But let's, uh, let's move on now, and this is Jenny Russell. The resignation of New York's Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, after the stunning revelations that he's been accused of choking, hitting and psychologically undermining four of his past girlfriends, is a chilling reminder of how deeply the currents of misogyny and violence against women still run. Schneider was publicly a champion of women's rights against men like Weinstein. In private, his behaviour was abusive. Me Too is just the tip of an iceberg. We've got to find ways to expose and deal with men's misogyny. So this is this story just broke just as we were um, coming in to record the podcast, but it sort of speaks to the, the wider issue of misogyny in politics. I mean, interestingly, he's been a campaign, he's a strong supporter of Me Too, very critical of Donald Trump. I mean, I, yeah, I, maybe we shouldn't be surprised now when people have been saying one thing in public and perhaps doing something else in private. He was a great democratic leader in this field and he was saying that he was going to prosecute Harvey Weinstein and that women must be in control of their own bodies and people who saw him in public thought, this is fantastic, this is the kind of man we need leading this charge. And then we discover that going back for at least a decade or so, as we know from the girlfriends who's testified, and quite probably longer than that because I'm sure that you don't just suddenly acquire this um, taste for hitting and abusing women um, late on in your life, he, he was probably doing it before, that actually he's, he's regarded women as whores and has wanted to control and undermine and abuse them. Now, I know from when Me Too happened in Britain that several of the men who have been undermining and abusing and sexually harassing women I know were coming out in public and championing the Me Too movement and saying that how disgraceful this was and left leaving a lot of women feeling very sick. But the question is, what does one do about this? I mean, when, when one of the girlfriends first reported what Schneiderman was doing to, to, to her to her girlfriends, they said, well, don't go public with this because he's too important to the democratic movement and to the liberal movement. So, I mean, men, that like extraordinary. That, yeah, yeah. so men like that get protected because people say, look, he's too useful. We should say that he, in a statement, he says he strongly contests the allegations. He describes it as role-playing another consensual sexual activity which the uh, women involved say it definitely wasn't they say it was um, physical well, assault a lot of it took place not during sex at all and it wasn't role playing it was just being hit literally out of the blue and so what does this this tell us apart from the, the depressing fact that we'll probably keep on getting revelations like this what does this tell us about where the me too movement is now I think that unfortunately it tells us that we've only just begun. There's a lot of us hoped when the whole thing exploded that then there would be a sort of cathartic 
um, exposure of a lot of male behaviour and that then perhaps the world would change. And of course, it doesn't at all. I know many women at the moment who are in situations where they are being very badly bullied and sexually harassed at work and they're not doing anything about it because as one person said to me there's six male managers married who are hitting on me she said if I report them the company is not going to sack those six, six people those six people are just going to make my life absolutely impossible so I think one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that Me Too by its nature is going to report historical abuse by people who are either now out of the industries or have managed to become sufficiently powerful and respected within them to talk about what's happened to them. But the people who are currently being affected aren't going to be able to do that without destroying their own working lives. Anne? Don't we think it's significant, though, his decision this morning? Would this have happened before the Me Too movement, before Weinstein? Or would those women have continued to remain silent? Changes like this will take decades yes. to take effect. And with people able to come forward, with people recognising that um, you, if you expect somebody to be an honourable figure in their public life, they should be so also in their private life. Because previously, it was thought that if a person behaved honourably in their public life, what they did at home really didn't count. Now, I wonder if the perception is changing and that we can't expect overnight change. But I think one of the interesting things about this is that uh, a lot of men have never realised that this kind of thing went on. Because not, not all men, I don't think even the majority of men behave like this. And I think that the men who behave in a civilised fashion towards women have been absolutely stunned to discover the depth of the harassment and abuse that women suffer from some others. I mean, yeah, is that I'm true for you, My my initial reaction to the, the Me Too stuff came up was, what is the matter with these people? You know, it was... Mm not so much with the Eric Schneiderman case because it seems to be in his private life particularly just work just get on with your job it's sort of slightly better and you are right that because mm. and increasingly I think because society has changed enough that it's not all in mm. open sight in you know mm. in view of all people at work I think a lot of men like myself probably thought it wasn't going on because you didn't see it and it wasn't like in the films from the 50s and the 60s and all that sort of thing whereas, whereas you're right that the, I think you know I don't know what you think Ollie but the perception that yeah it, it was going on more than you th you expected. I mean, I think I was very struck by something my mum said. She was born in what 1940, and when she was growing up in her teenage years in London, they'd go into London and they'd be on the tube, and men would have a grope, and that was teenage girls, 14, 15, mm -hmm. and her attitude of a certain generation was, well, these are just a sort of sad, dirty old men. Now, yeah, these days that would be a jail sentence and that is how society has moved on and I think we are going through that of what is acceptable as a society and that's not to say looking at it now that it's, that should ever have been acceptable etc etc yeah. but I do think this is a process and I do think stories like this and the effect that they have will change society's views yet yet further. It is interesting when I reflect back what was said and done to me in the early parts of my career I hope that my younger colleagues will not have that dealt out to them. And I also remember what it was like when you reported on these guys and the guy to whom you reported it, because it always was a guy, thought, you lucky girl. You that, should be flattered. That you should be flattered. That was, that was the immediate response. Isn't that a validation of your looks? And then you would realise at that point you could say no more because you basically weren't speaking the same language. 
I do feel that this is will be a generational thing and that we need to get we need to be almost patient though it is an intolerable situation perhaps perhaps one of the answers is that people who are harassing women now will begin to understand that although they may be getting away with it at the moment it's going to come back and sabotage yes. them later and it, that is the sort of the unseen impact of me too is when things stop happening mm. or a boss takes things more seriously than they would have done before because nobody's going to celebrate the fact they've gone through a whole day at work without being harassed you know as yes. a development but long term that well, is, you actually know, i think they are but that sort of that sort of cultural change yes something not happening is harder to monitor than things happening and also as the workplace moves on from being a kind of like a playground for men with women in it whom they've appointed to those roles because they're the kind of women they like the look of maybe we will advance because I think we've all been in those kind of offices where you recognise how recruitment happened and I don't think that can happen anymore either. And Ollie, in terms of British politics, we had this sort of extraordinary explosion in October, November last year which culminated in Michael Fallon resigning. There was other, and then obviously Damien Green um, just before Christmas. It felt like sort of been British political terms, Christmas acted as a firebreak, and you'd almost think that, <laughs> the, um, the, you know, that was all that sorted. Then Damien Green and Michael Fallon had gone. There was therefore no more harassment happening in Westminster. No, I think that was it. Was you're you're absolutely right, and that was that was remarkable. I mean, lots was talked about that email list of people who had you know similar claims, etc. But that list did not stand much scrutiny, and there were quite a lot in there which was yeah provably false. And I'm not sure you know, there were and there are people whose behaviour falls way, way below the mark. I'm not sure that it is currently endemic in Westminster. I think there's a bit of it. But do I don't do women talk to you about it? Histori- I mean, about historically, Would you have known beforehand? Yes. It was partly about a culture in Westminster, particularly in the sort of the journalistic sphere, which was quite a boozy culture. People would go out, you know, have several drinks at lunchtime. Boundaries were blurred. Yeah, not, that's not making excuses. That's not saying anything is acceptable. But it was, it was a pretty, it's a pretty weird, you know, for someone from the outside, it is a very weird environment. Where else would you work until 11 o'clock at night? Just you, possibly one other person in the office. There are only about four or five people in most people's offices. It is not a healthy environment where, you know, there is no sort of proper line management system. There's no one outside the MP that employs them. Most of the people working there are young. Actually, I think there is a way way beyond this there was a need to reform the way in which Westminster works to make it a much more sensible modern workplace I think that's quite true when people saw the human resources rules or the absolute lack of them in parliament they were shocked when they know how well regulated their own organisations are now and I think one of the things we've seen is that the harassment story sort of moved on to bullying, you know, and speak, especially speaking to some of the unions and things which operate in, in Parliament. Almost every researcher has a story to tell about an awful experience with either their own boss, MP, or other MPs who just seem to think that everyone in Parliament is there for their their benefit. And we've seen, you know, John Burke caught up in it. As a woman, you often both get bullied and sexually harassed, yeah, and the two things together. Certainly having spoken to Andrea Ledsam about it, he's sort of leading this in Parliament. She, she's absolutely adamant that the sexual harassment has been a problem and needs to be addressed, but the bullying thing is so widespread in terms of scale. I wasn't, you know, mm. and it, you know, the, you can't have a scale of what's more serious and what isn't, but in terms of this, the scale, the bullying th- thing seems a, a much more widespread problem then. 
Mm. Um, let's uh, use that word. Or at least there are more men in Parliament, so I guess if everyone's being bullied, then statistically uh, it's statistically, worse. Everybody's being bullied, exactly <laughs> right. Um, in a sec, um, we'll move on and talk about Brexit. We'll be back after this short break. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. Joining the studio this week by Jenny Russell and Ashworth, and this is Ollie Wright. Another day, yet another Brexit red line from Boris Johnson. First it was the divorce bill, then the length of the transition period. And remember what happened to them. They were well and truly trampled over without so much of a murmur from the Foreign Secretary. This is a politician who is so fond of his own rhetoric that he allows it to override complex policy considerations. And today's problem about the customs union is one such example. Just explain if, God forbid, somebody was enjoying over the bank holiday weekend. They, they took a short break from the merits of the customs partnership and MaxFAC and all those sorts of things. What, what is it that Boris Johnson's so cross about this time? Crikey. To believe? Right, bear with me. These are... That noise is Anne having hysterics. <laughs> <laughs> Anne, were you not reading up on the customs union over the back holiday weekend? Is that, is that what's happened? I was in Amsterdam for the weekend in that home where great liberal democracy was born in the 17th century. So I was focusing more on reading the history of that. And of course, when I get home and read about Boris, I think his rhetoric and his eloquence is overwhelms him and perfectly formed paragraphs start to spill out of his mouth but he doesn't always quite believe them am i right there i think you are maybe this is a problem of journalist turned politician um discussed but uh, to go back to the uh, the two options on the table one is this idea for a customs partnership which is what boris hates so much and that is the idea that we would avoid a hard border between northern ireland and southern ireland between dover and calais by collecting all the customs duty due on EU products when they arrive in Britain, then passing those on to Brussels. Um, if those goods were got sent on to a different European country, then the Europeans would keep their customs duty. If, however, they remained in Britain, um, they might be charged a lower rate um, because we've struck a free trade deal with America or Australia or one of those countries, in which case those companies would be refunded. Now, this is a horribly, horribly complicated This sounds like a idea. very complicated government IT system. It is. Waiting to go horribly <laughs> but wrong. We know but, how but brilliantly <laughs> they've always but worked. The way to understand it is this. There were two, rec- two problems they needed to reconcile. One is how do you avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland? And two, how are you able to strike free trade deals? So May wanted free trade deals and she wanted to avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland. And she said to the civil service, these are my two policy priorities, come up with a solution. And it is testament to how difficult that is that they've come up with a customs partnership, which no one can understand because it is so complex, because trying to solve those problems is almost insoluble. Jenny, do you think Boris is in danger of becoming the boy who cried wolf? He, he keeps setting these red lines and then sort of disappears when he gets basically walked over. Yeah, I think Boris has failed this test so many times, I can't believe that anyone's still taking the man seriously. Let's not um, forget that he was the person who was going to 
lead the Brexit campaign. The minute that the referendum came through and he had actually won, he looked like a terrified rabbit and disappeared from sight. Then he pulled out of the leadership contest because Michael Gove deserted him because he didn't have enough confidence in his own beliefs in order to be able to stand up and say to the party, I'm the one who should lead you through Brexit. Then having cowered a little while, um, away from the limelight. He's then made a career of coming forward and making grand declarations about things he will, with which he will not put. Um, and then he turns out to have no plans of his own. So all he does is stand in the corner and complain about what everyone else is doing. He didn't have the courage. He didn't have any plan for Brexit, as it turns out, although he led the campaign against it. He didn't have the courage to stand for the leadership and find out whether his colleagues had the backing for him. And he's just making a career out of standing in the back, stamping his foot, saying, ah, ha, ha, grand plan, me. I don't like that woman at the front. But he's no leader. Since Ollie has so very nicely explained to us this customs union plan with which Boris does not agree. Do we know what Boris thinks would work? In a short answer, no. What, <laughs> That's always been his problem. What, what we do know is that he thinks that there's only one problem that needs to be solved, and that's the Irish border problem. And he thinks that if Britain stands firm and basically turns around to the EU and says, we're not going to put a hard border in Northern Ireland, you know, if you want to, fine, that's your problem. But he will be able that the Europeans will suddenly back down, that the Irish government will back down, and that we'll be able to not be in the customs union and have no border in Northern Ireland. That is his, that's his view, effectively. Right. And every single bit of evidence that's come out of the negotiations so far indicates that the Europeans are not going to roll over and let us have our own version. No, and what's of more, an yeah, and what's more, you know, that might have been true a year and a half ago, but the position in Ireland has just changed so much over that period. It's become uh, the issue of the border has grown exponentially over actually probably the practicalities of it. It's now symbolically important, <laughs> and in Ireland, symbolism matters hugely and history matters hugely. I've spent a lot of time there, and I have never known people so upset and angry about this issue, far beyond the actual proportionate effect that it might have, and I think there's a real danger there. I was struck, we had a piece from Neil Richmond, who's a senator in Ireland, and he's the chairman of the Irish Parliament's Brexit Committee. And he, he, he raised all of the objections again and, and categorically stated that the idea of a return to a border would lead to a return to violence. And this is immediately then gets shouted down by Brexiteers on the other side, but there appear to be a counter-argument for how to solve this problem then. If, apart from just basically saying, well, we'll just have an open, flowing border between two entirely separate countries with different customs arrangements. Yeah, I mean, the big, big, big problem here is agriculture. Um, you know, forget about, you know, truckloads of Nissans being smuggled over the border. What the European <laughs> Union, with some justification, is petrified over is that we strike a free, deal, free trade deal with America. We allow imports of large quantities of cheap American beef, which is then uh, gets into Northern Ireland, shipped over and is sold off as, you know, prime Irish fillet and goes into the French market. And I think they have... Yeah, those concerns are, are legitimate. Um, and that's what you always have to remember in this. Well, first of all, of course they're right, because any system where you can fiddle it and make money out of the consequences, <laughs> human beings do that. And, and <laughs> so there's absolutely no question that, that that kind of thing will be an enormous problem. The second um, problem here is political. I worked in Northern Ireland in the late 80s when riots were taking place and there were unionist armies on the street protesting against the Angarge Agreement and there were bombs all the time and roadblocks on the roads and people being shot and it was hellish and there were borders 
checkpoints on the border and the situation was incredibly tense. I think people who've lived with the peace of the past 30 years have actually no idea, no recollection of the 30 years before that that had been hellish. And we really are in danger of going back to that. And the ignorance of the Brexiteers who just think that this is immaterial and it doesn't matter, that they don't understand the psychological consequences of dividing that border again. There's a very delicate balance in Northern Ireland and if now Britain decides to leave the customs union and instead we either have a hard border in Northern Ireland which will enormously anger those people who consider themselves part of Ireland or we have a border in the Irish Sea which effectively makes Ireland a united nation which will infuriate the unionists then we will have destroyed that delicate balance and we've no idea of the forces we're going to unleash biggest problem is you've got the unionist side saying we want to be out of the customs union and you've got the nationalist side saying we want to be in it so exactly the two sides where you had the original conflict are on the opposite sides of this debate and no one is sort of sitting down and work trying to work jointly on a solution and the most extraordinary thing about this is why was boris in new york trying to talk trump round on the iran deal And it seems as if he doesn't know what to do in the main bit of his job. He just says something (laughs) about something else to divert attention. I mean, he does play us all very, very well. And we have to keep remembering that he is really almost magical in his powers of diverting us from the main issue. Yes, let's not forget that Boris's only agenda here is Boris's own ambition. So just very quickly, one word answer from everyone. Do we think this will be the resigning issue for Boris? Only if he thinks it will serve his purposes in getting closer to the Tory leadership eventually. Anne? Uh, there'll be some more blustering on some other subject very, very soon. No. No. Well, slightly more than one word each, but we've got there. Uh, anyway, enormous thanks uh, to my guest this week. A reminder, you can sign up to Ollie's Brexit Briefing, which comes out every Thursday morning. You can sign up at thetimes.uk forward slash bulletins. You can also sign up to my morning email every day, five days a week, not just once a week, at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device. And do leave us a review, because it will help us in the charts when even Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg have got podcasts. Uh, but for now, for my guests, Ollie Wright, Anne Ashworth, Jenny Russell, and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.